This episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. It's one of the biggest environmental problems of our time, and it's getting worse every day. Plastic, a lot of it. In season one of At Scale, a sustainability podcast, Morgan Stanley looks at the most critical plastic waste challenges and innovative solutions for a more sustainable future. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. On this week's edition, some of the sights and sounds of Climate Week, Loop makes plans for global domination, what you should know about carbon removal purchase agreements, and why overcoming the cold chain isn't small potatoes. It's the Big Green Apple, this week on 350. It's September 24th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from across the Hudson River in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It was amazing to see you this week. Yay. Was so happy to see you. <laughs> you know, we're, uh, it was. I totally agree. And it, and it was also just great to be where other people are, not just other humans, but the other corporate sustainability and climate professionals. Mm -hmm. um, it was, you know, some semblance of normalcy, obviously, with face coverings and ID checks and all kinds of cautious things. And it wasn't, of course, the usual climate week. It was, uh, you know, uh, smaller, um, but uh, plenty of uh, virtual events, but enough uh, in-person things to uh, certainly make it worthwhile for me to have come out from California. Yeah. And uh, yes, it was really good that we got to spend some quality time together mm -hmm. in person as opposed to on Skype or something else. And uh, it was <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. Was there any, uh, you know, like, I know you had a lot of meetings, not not just with Climate Week. I think you saw our friend Stephen Ritz this week. How's he doing? I did see Stephen Ritz, the uh, co-founder, the founder and life spirit of uh, Green Bronx Machine, a nonprofit on whose board of directors I, I now sit. And um, we had a board meeting and we I spent some time with Stephen, uh, just an amazing organization that is uh, teaching kids um, gardening and cooking and food and nutrition uh, in the classroom uh, in some of the poorest or I think the poorest uh, congressional district in America, mm -hmm. in the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. And uh, and this, this program is unbelievable how it's spreading out to uh, states, uh, various states and school districts around the United States. And in, in the Middle East, they they love Stephen Ritz <laughs> in the in the Emirates uh, to and they and he's been going there and working with uh, the sheiks and others. It's 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 quite um, it's it's I mean one of those who to thunk moments. Yeah. But it's always uh, such a great pleasure to see Stephen. And um, yeah, you know, for me, I'll be, I'll confess a little something. And uh, I am in New York City, so you're probably hearing some street action sirens uh, in the background, perhaps. Um, 
Climate Week is always uh, a thinly veiled excuse for me to come to New York and see everybody, uh, mm-hmm. everybody being the, our clients, partners, uh, new friends. Uh, and so I spent a chunk of the week uh, running around uh, mostly Midtown or actually downtown as well, which, uh, you know, it's two years it's been since I was uh, last in New York. And um, it just uh, was glorious, uh, so, although we had some... Uh, very, very, very heavy rain on uh, Thursday night. Um, that there was a little uh, off-putting for the, you know, for those of us who were trying to eat outside. But you know, that comes with the territory. Yeah. Well, I, as I mentioned, I kind of week is always a challenging week because of so many announcements. You have to sort through a lot of noise. Um, but I felt like. I knew what to go after. And I, I loved the theme this week, which I talk a little bit more um, with, with Helen Clarkson later in the episode about, which, which is getting it done. And I, I really do think that's the focus. And, and I, and I, the, the people that I ran into, you know, we're, a, we're an optimistic pledgy kind of group of people we want to do right. But I, I, I heard in, in the conversations I was having this sort of commitment to doing, doing things differently to, to actually really focusing in on the action and PS sharing what was working with other organizations to, to get, to help them get things done. I think that that has always been one of the things I most appreciate about this community, which is the spirit of, of willingness to share and, and to make help others do better as well. So that for me was a big takeaway. Also one thing that I'm going to be following a lot more with a lot more intention kind of alludes to something you were talking to Stephen about, which is education. Like how do we get the next generation prepared for the, the, the clean economy for, for a just clean economy? What are the right ways to educate people? And it's PS, it's not, you know, what we've been doing. So lots of uh, conversations I had this week about training and programs and certificates and new jobs and where are they and what is a green job anyway? So lots to parse. Um, and I, I, I feel energized, uh, but also, pra- you know, I'm feeling like practically, pragmatically energized, right? <laughs> Focusing on. No, I think that. Yeah, yeah. I think that sort of sums up what Climate Week wants to be about. It's energizing mm-hmm. and and practical, and mm-hmm. you know, pr- getting practical, scalable solutions is what this is all about. Uh, Helen Clarkson, you referenced earlier, by the way, is the CEO of of Climate Group, which puts on Climate Week, and uh, kudos to. Helen and her remarkable team for yet another event under obviously suboptimal conditions. But um, let's uh, get a little bit deeper into it and then all the other stories that we uh, published this week on greenbiz.com with the Week in Review. I would like to start this week with uh, a story by our senior editor, Dion Anderson, about a company that we've been tracking for a long time uh, and, a, and an initiative that they're doing. Uh, this is Loop, the uh, milkman-style uh, <laughs> uh, delivery service uh, and refill service for consumer products that uh, that rolled out a couple years ago, uh, two and a half years ago. At the uh, it, was, it was launched at the World Economic Forum in, in Davos in, uh, I guess that was uh, 2019. 20- 2019. 2019, think, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And now they're adding uh, in-store pickup and drop-off for reusable packaging. Now, just a refresher, this is the thing where you like the old, they call it the milkman uh, or milk delivery service now, perhaps, a model where uh, you have a product, you use it up, 
you have the empty container, the container gets returned or picked up or something, uh, and then gets refilled. And uh, this was launched uh, with great fanfare, uh, dozens of major brands and products, you know, Unilever's and Procter and Gamble's and, and many others. Um, and uh, it's now two and a half years later, and uh, as uh, Dion Anderson writes, uh, they're trying to uh, offer more in-store service. So you bring your packaging back to your containers back. Uh, to uh, the store where presumably where you got it or some other participating store uh, in the U.S. That would be Kroger, Walgreens, Burger King, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Burger King's cousin up in Canada, uh, Tim Hortons. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get it refilled. And uh, now I have to say, I read this story. Uh, Tom Zaki, the CEO of TerraCycle, is a master marketing genius. <laughs> uh, he knows how to get attention. And I mean, he once told me he get, he gets like a... You know, I forget, like a hundred or so, or more than a hundred uh, stories about Terra, uh, TerraCycle, the parent company, and now Loop um, every month. <laughs> but you, Heather, oh, so I guess the point of that, by bringing that up, is that I'm still unclear what's actually available now. This sounds like an announcement that we are going to be doing this, rolling this out in all of these stores. I don't know that it's ready or it's available. If so, uh, how how widely? Um, but uh, so as a little little vaporware, as we used to say mm-hmm. back in the dot com and uh, and and uh, software days, um, that it's uh, a bit you know this is something we're gonna do and uh, but it's not here yet. But but Heather, I want to ask you a question because you signed up for this. It's uh, one of the first places that Loop the service was available is in uh, your neck of the woods in uh, New York City and and northern New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania. And I know you used it uh, way back then, like two or more years ago. What happened? Are you still using it? Uh, <laughs> wh- where did that go? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I read this story with interest exactly because of that. I, I actually do want to make one comment first about the, the availability. The service is, this part of the service is available in the UK in Tesco. It is out, up and running, um, the, the, the in-store component of it. Mm. In the United States... Um, that is supposed to be by the first quarter of next year. So yeah, it is a little vapory. And PS, that was supposed to be a year ago, right? The in-store launch, and obviously for because of COVID and other reasons, I think, um, you know, things got delayed. But yeah, so I am not using it very often. Um, the thing that I was always frustrated by was the the I, I just couldn't quite rationalize in my mind the ordering of these items from over e-commerce service and having them delivered in a UPS truck that was emitting, right? And so like the the whole like circular part of this, the 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 pre-fill, like you could you could reorder keep reordering um containers that had been filled or that you were going to, you know, you would know no, you know, when you sent it back, you were going to get get a fill, filled one. Um so you could kind of order ahead and, and put that in place. But I stopped ordering because I had a really hard time with that, like just mentally, like dealing with the transportation part of it. I actually used to take, just for perspective, when they would deliver these things, there were these huge totes. Um, like I, I, looking at my arms here and trying to guesstimate how wide they were, but let's just say they were two by two or something, two by two by two, like a, as a cube. You know, there were. So this small. is like one of those, uh, one of these uh, cold bags that you, yeah. some of us use for, for picnics, or you see uh, others, uh, messengers who are delivering food, yeah. uh, food delivery services. So is that kind of square, you know, two by two, as you call it? And, yeah. and so you had that in your home. You, uh, Luke yeah. provided that to you to bring your uh, these uh, containers back. Is that how that worked? Yeah, and you know, 
how many do you order? So the thing was big, right? So if you only ordered one or two things, you kind of, I always would feel guilty, you know, like, oh my God, I'm making this whole delivery happen for these two products, you know, and they were glass or aluminum, you know, they, they, they weighed more than the plastic, which is of course a whole nother story, um, which, you know, it has more to do with the transportation emissions associated with it. Um, the packaging is one thing, then there's a the transportation. So it always frustrated me that I couldn't just drop off one of the containers somewhere when I was out. Without the tote. Yeah, without the tote. You know, I, um, you know, Kroger's, and I don't know if you mentioned them earlier, but the two big partners in the U.S. for this product, this service, are Kroger's and Walgreens. So big, big operations where you could, in theory, bring things back. So, you know, I stopped using it because I, I really had frustration with that. I'm still a member. Um and actually, I think it's worth noting, um, Deanna does note this in the story, that they are going to discontinue the e-commerce service eventually. So like right now, if I were to order from the e-commerce service, I still wouldn't be able to bring the stuff back to the store, which is just, which is what I really wanted. It's like, okay, if I'm going to order, you know, 20 things and it comes in a big container, you know, could I walk this down to my local Walgreens or Kroger's the next time I'm, I'm walking around the area? Because I do a lot of walking in my town. And the answer is, no, I will never be able to do that, which is a little frustrating. But um, anyway, I do think that this is the the model. Um, the, the to go back to the your comments about like the McDonald's and Burger King part of it, that that's like it's cool that they're they're testing that because uh, you know of all of the the sort of disposable containers and 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 of course just salad has has had a very successful adoption of its reusable bowls that people bring their bowls back when they when they want to have a lunch at, at, at a just salad so i think they're those two fast casual restaurant chains are are testing that sort of idea so i'm curious about that although i think it's worth it i i asked when when i was editing the story i asked Deanna, i'm like okay Deanna, how much is the deposit for the the coffee cup like from mcdonald's and it's like a dollar i mean like you're well, gonna, yeah. you know, so it's just super expensive. So I'm kind of wondering who's going to try it, you know, and I, I don't mean to poo poo and we're probably spending way too much time on this, but I, I love <laughs> just the, this model in general. And I love that they're experimenting and, and continuing experiment. And yeah, it is kind of vapory, but you know, we need this experimentation in order to figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, you know, it's worth spending the time on this because, you know, this seems on its face, at least conceptually to be the thing that we've all been looking for, the silver bullet, if you will, around uh, engaging consumers on some of these things and not just the 10 or whatever percent of, you know, mm -hmm. true blue, true green, yeah. whatever consumers, but uh, the masses. And mm -hmm. so, um, mm -hmm. uh, but um, Heather, while you've got the talking stick, I want to move over to another story. When you wrote this week uh, about carbon removal purchase agreements, uh, I think that this is something that ran originally in the free uh, Climate Tech weekly newsletter that you write. Yep. And um, uh, you start off with a bunch of numbers, 10 billion tons, <laughs> 4,000 tons, yeah. $10 million. What's going on here? Yeah, so this story was inspired by several different developments. Um, the you know, the most physical and notable of which potentially is the switching on of the Orca carbon direct air capture facility in Iceland, which was brought online um, early earlier this month by Climeworks, which is a, a startup I've been watching for a few years. Um, the, the idea is, you know, they're basically one of these 
these companies that's working on technology to suck the carbon out of the air to remove it. And they are partnered with an organization called Carb Fix, which then takes the, the, the carbon dioxide that's captured and injects it into um, minerals. It becomes mineralized and, and is stored for, you know, more hundreds of years in, in theory. So the per, there's permanence to this to this method of, of carbon removal. So that so the the four thousand metric tons uh, number <laughs> is is how much this plant can capture annually. Now, so it you know that's like okay, that's pretty impressive. It's like the biggest number of any facility that's out there right now. But the ten billion tons number is <laughs> what we need to capture mm. annually. In order to, you know, get the atmospheric carbon removed uh, and meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, so we, uh, we, you know, we talk a lot about avoidance and removal of, of of carbon dioxide. Like the most of the focus has been on, if you will, avoidance. Like so, people talking about preserving trees or avoiding carbon by like forests and so forth. Uh, you know, putting trees in place that will help keep it out of the air. But we also need to remove it, and that's something you're very well aware of. Um, the 10 million number is the value of the contract that Swiss Re signed with Climate Climeworks um, to offtake the carbon removal uh, aspects of this, this plant for the next 10 years. So I, I'm calling it a carbon removal purchase agreement because it's very similar to the, the power purchase agreement model that we, we know many corporations use now to, to quote, purchase, end quote, renewable energy, right? So they're going and investing in this solar plant or, or wind power, you know, wind farm, and they're getting the, the value of that renewable energy in some way, which they can then account for. So this is a similar uh, arrangement that's starting to emerge. Swiss Re, this is the, you know, probably the, this is the biggest contract I've seen, but we're also seeing contracts, you know, with companies like Microsoft, which is, has relationships with these, with these organizations. And they're helping basically fund fund the future, right? So they're they're paying more now to help get this market kickstarted. And, and it's kind of, like I said, very similar to what happened, I don't know, I guess five years ago now with, with the early parts of the, the renewable corporate renewable energy procurement phenomenon that we saw. So fascinating story. There's, there's a lot happening here. Um, one of the other things that I'll mention, and then we'll, we can move on, is I love, I, I, I actually watched um, a week ago this direct air capture summit that Climeworks organized. And what really struck me is that they had all, they had a lot of their competitors there. So this is not like Climeworks, you know, talking about its great plan. Of course, they're great. You know, of course, they're talking about how great they were, but they had a lot of other organizations there that are trying to get this industry really moving forward um, and getting these, these facilities up and running. I, I think uh, it was, you know, really striking. We, we need something like, you know, 30 companies the size of Royal Dutch Shell as, as Julio Friedman, who's, who's been following this market um, for some, quite some time. We need that many companies to get to the scale we need, right, of that carbon removal proposition. So Julio Friedman is the senior research scholar um, at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia and someone who follows this industry very closely. And, and that was also market for me because we need big companies to, to do this and, uh, Climeworks is recognizing that, and they're like just trying to get get, get every boat rising, right? <laughs> get as many people out there as possible to to do this. So, yeah, that's that's what was going on in my brain <laughs> when I wrote this. So, my question to you, Heather, is: 
Why would a company like Swiss Re mm -hmm. or Microsoft or uh, we talked about you've written about Stripe, um, yeah. uh, uh, payments company Stripe? Why would they do this? Um, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, uh, Swiss Re is paying plenty for the privilege of being an early adopter, mm -hmm. um, although it's not disclosing exactly what it's paying on a yeah. per metric ton basis yeah. of removing carbon. Why, why are companies? doing this, uh, raising their corporate hands and, uh, and stepping into this thing that's obviously not yet uh, cost competitive or cost uh, efficient, yeah. I guess. Yeah. What's going on? So what's going on is that the, these companies, um, Swiss we've got a slightly different perspective than the others, uh, but, I'll, but I'll mention all, what all of them want to do, which is just they want more of these things out there. So they're Swiss Re and Microsoft both have internal carbon prices, right? So they they basically charge different teams. Um, they levy levy fees internally to help basically fund this and in, in, fund these sorts of activities. So the um, what Swiss Re charges is a hundred dollars per metric ton. They started charging that in January, you know, for activities that that could in the future incur carbon taxes for the company. So like they're, they're betting in the future that there's going to be some penalty that they'll have to pay. So they're preparing for this future in which they may have to pay a certain amount per metric ton to get the value of saying, oh, I'm a net zero company or whatever. So they're, they're sort of looking to the future to be able to, to hedge their bets. Um, they have the money. Swiss Re is also, I think, looking at, at its potential to be a, a a participant in this market, like insuring companies, right. And helping them make the claim. So I feel I, they're, they're absolutely, oh, although I didn't talk to them much about it at the, at, during my interview, they're absolutely looking at this as an opportunity, a business opportunity for the future. Right. And, and, and I how hope, I hope it works. insurance services around these facilities, right. These facilities are going to need some kind of insurance. Th these are bankable now revenue streams like Comeworks now has a revenue stream. So it can now go and raise more money because it has this, mm. this, this contract in place. So, you know, um, I'm not inside Microsoft, so I can't tell you exactly why they do, but they're, they're really, they're just trying to, you know, to get ahead of the curve. And in the future, you know, they're, they're, they're hoping that they're, the cost will come down over time. So, you know, they're, and they're going to have, be, they're going to be in there so they're guaranteeing a price in the future. So that's, that's what's going on. Well, I hope it works because uh, you need it. if it doesn't, it's going to, be going to have a chilling effect on the market. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. leads us into our last story that we want to mm -hmm. talk about mm -hmm. this week uh, by our associate editor, Jesse Klein, um, about the uh, some developments in the cold chain. The cold chain, of course, is uh, this complex system that things go through foods, medicines, uh, uh, other things that where they need to be kept cold over the course of from the time it gets to uh, it comes off the manufacturing line or however it's produced and until it, it's time for its use, uh, whether it's uh, medicine or something that we buy at home. So just, you know, think of frozen foods, uh, dairy, cheese, almost anything that needs to be kept cold. And this cold chain is uh, it's complex. It's it's expensive. It's uh, has uh, significant emissions. So much so that um, I know you know the 2017 book uh, Drawdown mm -hmm. that uh, Paul Hawken edited and, and others, uh, uh, many many others contributed to. Um, it it ranked a uh, hundred different solutions to uh, to cl addressing climate change mitigation, um, and it did them in. Uh, they're organized by broad categories: energy, food, women and girls, buildings and cities, land use, transportation, things like that. 
And it ranked them uh, in order with, uh, and the number one thing, the most uh, effective means of, of reducing uh, carbon emissions uh, was refrigeration. And, um, and it's, uh, I think, a, you know, a bit of a surprise to, to a lot of people. Um, but what uh, Jesse wrote about is a, um, some new technologies, uh, a particularly new technology um, from a, uh, 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 I'm sorry. So what Jesse uh, wrote about is a food startup called Farther Farms, Farther Farms, <laughs> uh, $10 million backed with capital from the National Science Foundation and other investors, created a new food preservation process that it hopes will make the cold chain uh, basically not necessary for traditionally frozen or refrigerated packaged food products. And um, uh, it's starting that with uh, with with potatoes, uh, ready to fry, uh, pre-cut French fries um, using a, a, a carbon dioxide uh, food pasteurization technology. Mm -hmm. It's uh, uh, one of the places that we want carbon dioxide, not in the atmosphere, but uh, doing the good work that it does uh, across a number of different, many, many different functions uh, here on uh, on terra firma. Uh, to keep uh, the product, in this case French fries, shelf stable for months without requiring a, a freezer or refrigerator. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's new technology and there's other technologies to address cold chain. And, and, and even if you have to keep it cold or frozen that to reduce the energy and therefore the carbon emissions associated with that. But I think this is, you know, one of those uh, potential disruptive, uh, potential breakthrough mm -hmm. technologies that we want to be keeping an eye on. And just really quickly, it, it uses a process that's similar to pasteurization, which uh, I think many or most people know uses heat uh, to process milk or other things that uses hot water and steam. And instead, uh, this uses uh, a similar process, but this supercritical phase of carbon dioxide, which is the point where a molecule is both a gas and a liquid at the same time, whoo, uh, it explodes, thinking about that. Um, and the pasteurization is done under high pressure, uh, but moderate temperatures. And uh, and then you have this product that is, uh, again, shelf-stable uh, in the way. Now, um, you know, this, we get, uh, you in particular, Heather, as the editorial director at Green Biz Group, but we all get dozens uh, mm -hmm. of, of announcements mm -hmm. a week uh, about technologies <laughs> yeah. that someday could change the game. And, um, and a lot of them are, you know, just coming out of the lab or they're startups, but that are, you know, maybe in the market or in the test pilot, uh, but not yet at scale. And uh, this one has some product in the market, but I, it's unclear again, you know, sort of, uh, uh, harkening back to a loop of how much of this is, is, is a lot of arm waving that mm -hmm. uh, this could work someday mm -hmm. and how much of this is, uh, is ready for prime time. Yeah. So actually, um, they do have a number of companies. So they're small as, as you noted before, and they do have a number of small customers. Um, in fact, if you, I, I, Full disclosure: I am a French fry maniac. I love French fries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you I had me. You had me at potatoes. In yeah, general. I know. Yeah. It's just like it, so. I was really excited about this story when I read it. But they do have uh, a number of of organizations that are buying restaurants um, that are buying the the products so that the French fries that they are using this for first. Um, and they they have some like there's a. Uh, like a high-end restaurant farm-to-table Heritage 147 that, that is like actually one of the early customers. Um, 
they went to this organization because they they didn't like the other sustainability messages from the other French fry suppliers. So so they're they're a customer. And in fact, if you check out their website, they're sold out. Like you you can't buy their product at least the last time I checked because um, I, I wanted to test it. Um, so I do I do think um, what what I love about this is that they have some small um, organizations that they are really proving their 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 concept with um, the I don't think you mentioned it earlier but the shelf life it started out as 90 days for the french fries it's now 120 so the, these don't have you know these can be in a facility for up to 120 days not requiring freezer space um, not you know they could be stored in a different way or they could be in the warehouse that long without requiring the huge massive the massive uh, energy usage to to keep them fresh and 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 safe for consumption. Um, the thing that that also intrigues me is that there is a potential over time for, you know, right now this organization buys the carbon dioxide from like a food grade manufacturer, the producer of it. But they could, in theory, uh, as some of the technologies that we were just talking about come into place at the industrial level, like they could, in theory, create a closed loop in their organization, in their in their, in their operation capturing carbon dioxide having it put you know put into the proper quality and then using it to to do their process they could create a closed loop process and they they are like in the looking towards a future in which they would like to do that so that's quite intriguing to me the thing that i always get a little you know a little and not not frustrated with but because it because it does require um require this kind of investment, but these are a lot, I'll just call it out. These are a lot more expensive than, than, a, than a frozen French fry. So if you, for 30 pounds, it costs like $40. Um, whereas mm. a traditional package of like a 30 pound, like would you would use in a restaurant or an operation like that, 20 to $30. So it costs substantially more. Um, you have to, you know, it's like one of those equations where the restaurants can have to look at the different costs. Like, so it costs this much, but I don't have to use this much energy. So there, there's like the TCO, the total cost of ownership has to be explored, I think, in a more explicit way. Or, you know, there's going to be a lot of organizations that just look at that price tag and go, oh, can't do that. You know, so um, the, the challenges of any new yeah. technology, I suppose. But uh, yeah, create quite an intriguing operation. Exactly. It's got to come down the price curve, but hopefully it will. And hopefully all this will be coming to a deep fryer near you. With barely five weeks to go before the crucially important COP26 climate negotiations, one of the overriding themes of this year's Climate Week NYC was a focus on getting things done. From a corporate standpoint, that means less talking and more doing more acting on the ESG risks and opportunities rather than just disclosing them. Here to help parse this week's biggest news and takeaways is Helen Clarkson, CEO of The Climate Group, which of course convened many of these events. Helen, so great to talk to you. Hello. Hi, good to talk to you. So I really loved something you said during your opening remarks. This is your problem, not your successors. That really just, I sort of went, ah, yes, yes, yes. Um, so give me some examples of corporate leaders or companies who are taking ownership of that mantra and preferably not the usual suspects. Yeah, sure. And um, 
Yeah, we all have a lot of fondness for usual suspects, but I do hear, you know, stop telling me about insert name of company here. So <laughs> just a few examples, and I wanted to share some like big and smaller. So um, one of our newest campaigns is Steel Zero. It's all about driving the global transition to 100% net zero steel by 2050. And Lendlease within that has committed to using 100% net zero steel by 2040. So the reason they've done that, you know, huge company, um, they can see that net zero steel is posing like a huge long-term cost risk to their business models. And they have found their experience in other ways is that the best way to manage that is to build the changes over time. They don't want to be just rushing and adapting after the event. So they've made a big commitment now, and then they'll work with us through the Steel Zero campaign in order to deliver on that. So at the other end of the scale, Cliff Bar, much, much smaller, is a member of RE100 and EV100. And they've got this amazing thing they call thinking like a tree. So they've put in a five-acre solar array at one of their bakeries in Idaho, which gives them about 90% of their power needs at midday. And then underneath that, they've planted native flowering plants underneath each panel, which is supporting local pollinator habitats. So it's this amazing kind of idea that quite literally thinking like a tree, you know, kind of look like that. But it's also kind of connecting with their employees um, and they have this financial incentive for employees to buy an electric vehicle and then they can charge those from the solar arrays. So it's really kind of linking linking things together and putting in place something which is, you know, I, I sort of think about how employees show up for work. That's a sort of phrase people have, but this is kind of quite literally coming in an electric vehicle, but also, you know, engaging in that, um, you know, in the renewable energy and the values of the company. And then finally, we've got another EP100 member, Kundal, which is a multidisciplinary consultancy that provides engineering design solutions for the built environment. And they joined the EP100 campaign um, and have got a very aggressive target that they'll occupy only assets that are net zero carbon by 2025. And so they're demonstrating best practice themselves, but also then helping clients from their own experience. Sticking with the theme of actually doing something. The Climate Group is the co-author, along with Oliver Wyman, of a very practical guide out this week called Getting Real, colon, a blueprint for a commercially smart climate transition. Had to get the title in there. What will listeners learn from this report and what makes it different, right? Because there are quite a few reports. So why? So in keeping with that theme, getting it real, getting it done, it's all about what can you, how are you going to go ahead and deliver? And so there's some key messages coming out of that report. One of them is about, you know, taking ownership of the problem. You can see that sort of for some businesses, one way out of the problem is to just, you know, sell something off or transfer ownership. But actually, we need businesses to be taking ownership of the issues and solving them. Um, and then another key message is around um, innovating the business, not the technology. And so, again, it comes to that thing of like, we can't wait. I think there can be a real temptation to think, you know, we hear it in some of the, the thinking that goes on around innovation is going to get us there. And yes, OK, it will. But there's a lot that we can do now. And a lot of those ideas around how you innovate the business model. And I know we you didn't want to talk about the usual suspects, but IKEA and Unilever have really led on this. And some of the work they're doing on circularity, you know, IKEA have this big target around all their products being circular. And that that means kind of for every product, really going back to what does it mean for this specific product? How do we take it through? Is it something that you're going to be able to reuse, repurpose, upcycle? That's a big project. And I think one thing as well that I'm always advocating is about how 
those leading companies are important because others can kind of come along and copy them. So I hope there's, there's some of that as well. But the, the report is very sort of getting into the action orientated piece. And like, how do you actually as a business grasp this? Yeah. I, by the way, I love the usual suspects too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unilever had a great supply chain goal out this week. So I, 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 that was something that I'm, I'm looking at. And actually that, that brings me to my next question because during the opening session, um, both, Alexander Alexander Palt from L'Oreal and uh, Nancy Mann from SD Lauder talked about the uh, increased focus on addressing scope three from their supply chains. And we know we know this is this, the hardest, <laughs> hardest thing to do. Um, but given that that suppliers to multinationals are often much smaller businesses, like the Cliff Bar example you meant, how would you encourage senior leadership at a small or mid-sized company to take action? Yeah, I think I think this is this is tricky. And the other bit that worries me, sort of, I know if I'm expanding your question or putting a different slant on it, but is when the multinationals then make it all about their suppliers, right? So you have to avoid that and mm. then you kind of just pass it along the supplier. Like mm-hmm. it's someone else's problem. So it is kind of similar issues, but I think what we're seeing more and more is engagement with supply chains and understanding things more as a systemic issue. And I think you know, for the smaller businesses, how do you make that your purpose or how do you how do you engage up and down the supply chain? That's critical. The same sort of thinking, I think, as applies to the multinationals. But how do you figure out that solution together and look at what those further up the supply chain are wanting? Because a lot of the big multinationals have set very, very clear targets. And if you can kind of sell into that. So I think I think this is a really tricky area and it is going to be needing a lot of collaboration. And, you know, I was at a, a closed door roundtable yesterday, so I can't go into who said what, but what was really interesting was from those big companies talking a lot about mindset shift. Now, again, it's it's kind of early days and, and the action isn't necessarily following the rhetoric yet, but you're starting to hear companies talk about the right things about this is going to require a mindset shift. And I think that's going to require part of that is that relationship between, you know, up and down the supply chain and how do you make it a collaborative issue, not a kind of, you know, do all of this and still sell me at the cheapest price. That's going to be the challenge. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's collaboration, which always seems to come up. I, I, I can't, I actually, there should be a drinking game tied to that. For, no, the, right, for, well, there's a lot of climate buzzwords, but yeah, you're right. right so, and, but that does require a mindset shift, right? And I think we yeah. have seen this in kind of some of the progressive sustainability things that have happened over the years, but it's kind of slow. Um, you know, I worked a few years ago, I think, um, we talked about that at the time with, um, in my last role, working with Target and Walmart on beauty products, and that whole piece of work, which, you know, is very challenging and there's not enough of it. And it's so much easier said than done. So I don't want to sit here and go, oh, just all collaborate. It's fine. Um, but I think that sort of understanding those supply relationships and understanding, you know, Unilever is doing a lot now on, um, on its supply chain and sourcing from diverse and different sorts of businesses. And they really want to prioritize minority-owned businesses and businesses owned by members of the LGBTQ plus community. So all of that, I think, is you can see them setting that as a target, and that is great for those businesses to get the reassurance that there are companies looking for their products, and I hope to see, we see more and more of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something uh, kind of related, but you, you also hosted a session on green jobs this week, and 
I think one of the things for me, the big takeaways was a couple of things. One is that it's not just about a solar engineer. There's so many different jobs tied to the clean transition. But the other thing is how the private sector really needs to get on board with hiring that isn't tied to to traditional degrees or traditional education paths. So I'm curious, any anything, any thoughts on that? You you ran a, a great session on that topic. Uh, what are your key takeaways from, from that? Yeah, that I think it's interesting because people say green jobs and then they assume that we all know what that means. Yeah. And, and I was, actually a few years ago, I said, can someone just, can we just expand what we mean by green job? And I think the ones that, just spring to mind a sort of, oh, we mean sort of solar and wind engineers. And in the US, I think I think this is still true that wind engineers is the biggest sort of sector of the whole workforce that's growing. So that's a very particular. But if you think about shifting the economy and changing it, that's going to need all sorts of skills and ones that we haven't even thought of yet. And I think having that really expansive view of what a different economy looks like. And I was reassured in that event talking to Secretary Granholm, like, about understanding that in a broad way. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it is those classic engineering jobs, um, but there's also lots of data that goes with that. You know, when we talk about smart and all the things that need to go with that, you need new sort of forms of regulation. You need just a different approach. And I think it's going to be a transition right across the economy. And that gets really exciting, I think. Jobs for new jobs for lawyers. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, um, I'm somewhat kidding. But okay, so looking ahead to COP, uh, where I hope to see you, uh, one major point of discussion is climate finance, right? And we heard a lot about that this week as well. The wealthy nations have pledged 100 billion annually from 2020 to 2025, not really meeting up to those pledges. Um, I think that Oxfam said that there, there were 75 billion short or something like that. I mean, some ridiculous number. Why should the private sector step up here? And what does that, what does that look like for them to help push this, this needle here on the finance that we need for so many different places to adapt and, and uh, move forward with us, move forward as part of a just transition? Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, there's always, there's often been this thing over the years of like companies waiting for governments and governments waiting for companies, and it's been kind of locked. And so I think there's been a lot of focus on that sort of public sector piece of that. But increasingly, businesses are understanding that there is a um, is a huge opportunity agenda here, and and that is going to come through investment. And and I'm starting to hear conversations where people are set again retroaction right but saying the right things about understanding the investment case in different ways um, in different uh, parts of the world so one of the things that we're looking at is that the climate group through our initiatives so things like ev100 re100 is how do you we've got these 300 plus companies committed in re100 say um when you have that number, yeah, it is about what each of those businesses can do on their own, and that's going to require some investment. I think we're seeing some really interesting things on the tech companies when they're, you know, they've got to power up all these data centers around the world and bring in interesting solutions to that and 24-7, all that kind of stuff. But actually, when you bring them together and try and create a collective voice, you can engage with policymakers. And we've done that in places like South Korea and Japan, where we've brought together you know, 50 or so companies to write to the Japanese government, for instance, and talk about the availability of renewables and say that the demand is here and um, 
and and if you can shift your policy, then we'll supply it. So there's this real kind of interaction, I think, between policymakers and the markets, and that how you use that demand voice, I think, is really critical. Great. One last question for you. Thank you for all the time you've given me so far. Um, greenwashing. So yeah. given all the concerns, rightly so, about this, how can corporations best demonstrate that their commitment to climate action is meaningful and real, that they are indeed getting things done? Yeah, so what we, with our programs, you know, we have, as I say, we make these commitments, companies make these commitments, and then we check in on them individually. And um, for RE100, for example, we do that in partnership with CDP. So the idea is that there's an annual reporting and tracking against the commitments. And as I say, we then look more broadly and we'll often say, so this EV100 a year or two ago, okay, but what's stopping you achieve this tomorrow? And that gets us into understanding more about the barriers and that will then direct our policy work. But underlying the commitments, we do check in and hold members to account, check in on progress as your interim target set. So I think it is really important to, to do that individual accountability work as well as, you know, the, the bigger piece that's around, um, you know, what's the, what's the campaign as a whole achieving and where do we need to look next? Great. Well, thank you for those insights. Looking forward to COP26 with optimism, stubborn optimism, I think, as some were saying today mm -hmm. <laughs> on some of the sessions um, it, that I saw on, on your hub. So, Helen, thank you for joining us here on Green Biz 350. Thank you very much for having me. You just heard from Helen Clarkson, CEO of The Climate Group. I'm Jesse Klein, Associate Editor for GreenBiz, and I'm here with Julie Stelmazic, Director of Food Strategy for the state of Rhode Island. She comes to this unique government role after a decade of experience in the food and agriculture industry. Her job is only one of two states that has this role in government. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. So what is Rhode Island's overall food strategy and how does that involve the business community? So Rhode Island's food strategy came about in 2016 under the last uh, administration, former Governor Raimondo, um, and it really was focused around creating a vision for our state to strengthen the food system with a focus on key sustainability outcomes and kind of this framework around three core focuses, achieving health equity, economic development, and environmental sustainability. So within that framework, there's five focus areas, two of which directly focus on um, the business community, both small and medium-sized companies, as well as large companies um, looking to grow uh, here in the state. So two of those focuses are around preserving and growing agriculture, fisheries, industries in the state. And the other is enhancing the climate for food and beverage businesses, um, tackling regulatory challenges and addressing funding gaps. Awesome. Can you tell me a little bit more about like how you're involving with the business community on a day to day level? Sure. So we have lots of different tentacles out to uh, the business community. Uh, some examples are some of our economic incentives and our tools that we make available to in-state and out-of-state companies to help us achieve this vision around a, a more local and resilient food economy. So one example are um, these fantastic initiatives that we have called innovation programs. It's a bucket of funding that's dedicated to driving innovation in the state. And just an example of uh, an initiative that came out of that is with um, 
a culinary food hub called Hope in Maine that we have in the state. They drive food uh, entrepreneurs to start their own businesses, um, start small, and then access market channels and grow. Um, so during COVID, they were actually able to take funds from this innovation voucher and help restaurants, which were closed, pivot to do uh, CPG, consumer packaged goods and retail items um, that they could sell into grocery stores uh, and retail outlets in, in the state. Got it. Yeah, you mentioned that Rhode Island has this, you know, a lot of coastline and has a huge food sector with over, over 60,000 jobs and that this area is ripe for growth in the state. You know, how are you planning to work with local farmers and fisheries in the state? And how does that support your sustainability initiatives? Yeah, so one of the ways that we're doing this is continuing to think about creative solutions to growing our uh, local consumption of sustainable and Rhode Island landed seafood. Right now, about 90% of our seafood consumption here in the state and New England overall is imported from outside of the United States. So just the focus on trying to create local demand for underutilized species like scup and monkfish and Acadian redfish, these type of species that are landing on our shores, is going to create a more resilient supply chain, but also promote sustainability um, rather than purchasing uh, seafood from outside of the United States. So we have an initiative called the Sustainable, uh, excuse me, the Seafood Marketing Collaborative. Um, that's a fantastic example of collaboration between NGOs, private industry, and government. It's driven by the Department of Environmental Management, and I'm certainly a part of it. And there's a big focus of, on bringing together commercial fisheries, aquaculturalists, and food systems advocates in the seafood industry and figuring out how we create more mar market channels for local seafood. Yeah. So how are you creating those market channels? Is there certain you know, places that you're going into to try to you know, drum up support for local buys? Yeah. So one of the ways is around farm to institution and thinking about how we can get more of this local seafood into schools and college and university. Uh, Johnson Wales University is a top tier culinary school that we're lucky to have here in state. They've done some really interesting work around um, creating delicious dishes around species that folks are not usually used to eating, like I said, scump, scup and monkfish. But it's also around addressing some of the supply chain issues. So processing and, and um, local food infrastructure, freezers and refrigeration, figuring out ways to actually um, get more of these local species onto people's plates. Yeah, that's really interesting. You talk about like the cold chain and, and freezer, because that's a really big issue for sustainability, obviously. You know, what are some of the things that you're doing on that freezer side to sort of help, you know, the, the flow of, of fish from, you know, the ocean to people's tables? Yeah, so there's a really interesting program that's been launched actually in response to COVID um, to try to address some of the food access, food insecurity issues, while also supporting our commercial fishermen here in the state. It's a program that's called Seafood for All, and it's actually been able to provide funding to purchase some of these underutilized species, whole fish, and deliver them to communities who actually like to eat whole fish. So that's one example that we're really excited about and trying to figure out ways to continue to support them and grow, grow that program. No, that's really interesting. I haven't really, yeah, there's definitely more communities than others that, you know, consume whole fish. And I hadn't thought about that as being 
you know, a, a very, a, you know, a supply chain that needs focus on. What about on the, the terrestrial side? Is there anything happening with farmers and, and regenerative agriculture or sustainable ag or anything on that side? Yeah. So we're really, I have a personal interest in this. And I think as a state, we're really thinking about um, how we can, how we can provide more uh, local food production year round. Um, so controlled environment agriculture and indoor farming is really a new and emerging industry here in the state. We're really excited about, we have a few really wonderful success stories here. Some of which have actually been state supported through different economic tools um, and grants. Gotham Greens is an example of a, a greenhouse that uh, a, an indoor farm that has moved here from, from New York. We also have Rhode Island Mushroom Company, one of the fastest growing food companies in the state. Um, and we also have a, a new kind of homegrown fifth generation farmer here in Rhode Island that's building a 25 acre indoor farm to grow uh, cherry tomatoes. It's called Rhode Island Grows. So we're thinking of ways that we can continue to foster and nurture this industry. Um, one of which is actually working on workforce development and thinking how we um, continue to support uh, training programs and workforce uh, development, which can actually prepare our workforce here in Rhode Island to support these emerging industries. Got it. Yeah. Is that sort of like a training program, like a, like an educational program? Yeah. There's several different kinds of programs that are in the works. Some are training, some are folk, some are actually working with our university partners to think about uh, degree programs. Um, and we're really just in the beginning stages of trying to understand the different professions that are, or the different types of jobs that are needed in, in the CEA industry. We have a lot of interest. There's a lot of companies that are, that we're starting to uh, talk with about um, actually coming to the state and expanding their, uh, their indoor farming operations to Rhode Island. Yeah. Like going, you know, continuing on that controlled environment agriculture lens, you know, are there any food startups that you're, you know, have pilot programs with at the state level and that you're hoping to, to nurture in Rhode Island? Um, none specifically around uh, controlled environment ag. It's really new. The, those kind of three that I mentioned are really exciting. Um, yeah, none that none none that are. We're really looking towards larger companies that are kind of well funded and, and established and are looking to expand here to the state. So those are kind of the primary focuses right now. It takes a lot of investment to get indoor farming. You probably know this, right? <laughs> so um, I, I know you've written about this. Um, it's, it's huge investments. It's a huge energy play. And so it, it's really big, big picture thinking. And uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that in addition to our food strategy, we also have a state goal around achieving 100% renewable energy by 2030. So um, I'm, I'm working with partners to try to think about how we can actually work together to align these kind of two strategic visions around um, uh, CEA actually providing a net positive to the grid and reducing fresh water consumption while also helping us achieve our local food production goals. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about how you are working with some of those like bigger indoor ag companies that you mentioned and how the state is helping support them? Sure. So we have at Commerce, uh, at the Rhode Island Commerce Corporation, we have a whole suite of economic tools and incentive programs to try to work with companies that are really mission aligned and, and, help, and can help us uh, uh, achieve some of our statewide goals, specifically around the food strategy. So, you know, some of the programs I mentioned would be workforce development. Um, we have tax, pro tax incentives. 
and and one of the roles that I really play and and that that I think is really exciting is having someone dedicated to connecting these companies to the food ecosystem. So when they land here in the state, they need to connect with distributors and buyers and and local supply chains. And so I can really um, help usher them into the state and connect them with this amazing ecosystem here in Rhode Island. How does environmental justice and food justice and equality factor into these different strategies around food? So our small business development, our small business assistant pro, assistance program at uh, the Commerce Corporation is has a has a focus on supporting um, disadvantaged uh, businesses, and so uh, minority and women-owned businesses is a big part of is a big focus uh, of that, and and so it's certainly a lens that we apply uh, to these economic incentives. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization stories and other things we mentioned this week. And while you're on GreenBiz, check out our free weekly newsletters, a great way to stay up to date all week long. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love your comments, your questions, your tips, anything you got to say. Howdy, uh, hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. It's one of the biggest environmental problems of our time, and it's getting worse every day. Plastic, a lot of it. In season one of At Scale, a sustainability podcast, Morgan Stanley looks at the most critical plastic waste challenges and innovative solutions for a more sustainable future. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.